0: Because here's the truth. We all want our prayers to be answered like we think they should be answered. But God's ways are higher. He has plans we can't even imagine. I had no idea any of this was gonna happen. I had no idea that there was a different purpose for my life and I truly believe there is through all of this. But I I, I realize it now. And, and if, if prayers had been prayed like, God let your will be done, please let it let him be healed like this that and the other i don't believe that there would have been that sense of peace if my wife was praying that prayer at home there wouldn't have been that comfort there wouldn't have been that belief in the process but because my my wife was i've taught her to pray this prayer i've taught my young people to pray this prayer it sounds crazy before we go on youth trips i say lord let your will be done no matter the outcome
1: guys this is brian and i'm tony and you're listening to the crucial conversation podcast
2: As everybody knows by now, uh, there's this pandemic that's been going on for far too long, in my opinion, um, and I may not have the greatest uh, knowledge of it firsthand, um, but for sure, today our guest certainly does, Brian. Uh, we have with us today Brother Andrew Caulfield from uh, Aurora, Illinois, um, Pastor Brent Coulthard, correct? Yes, sir. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, so Illinois friends right from the get-go we've never met but we got blood together since we're both from Illinois how about that that's right <laughs> but that's how uh, we do it Andrew thank you so much for uh taking some time with us on Mother's Day we're recording this on Mother's Day uh to tell us a little bit about your story uh it's got some wide range of attention on uh, social media um a lot of people was real worried about everything that was going on in your life and um We wanted to invite you on to kind of tell your story while this pandemic is still going on. So let's start from the beginning, if you don't mind. Tell us a little bit about um, what you went through uh, for a little bit.
0: Yeah, at the outset, uh, we were in Illinois until the shelter-in-place order uh, was put forth uh, by our governor. Uh, Illinois was one of the first states to do so. So it was very early on uh, in this pandemic pandemic. So from there, uh, we decided we were going to go back to my home state of Michigan to quarantine with family uh, as we have a two-year-old little boy who is wild. He <laughs> is the uh, second coming of the Energizer Bunny. And so we, we said, hey, let's, let's go up to Michigan. It really was a spur-of-the-moment decision. Uh, we got in the car and... Drove up to Michigan. From there, we were uh, hanging out that weekend. Uh, nothing out of the ordinary was happening. And then Sunday uh, was the day that changed everything. Uh, after our first Sunday virtual uh, service, uh, we had pretty much the rest of the day to, to relax. Uh, I chose to do otherwise, I, I chose to go. Uh, play my first game of basketball in months as I'm really out of shape. And I went and played ball with my nephew. And, uh, that's really the beginning of my COVID-19 journey as I was playing ball with him. He's, he's a big boy. He's, he takes after me. I'm six foot five, uh, easy two forty, um, depending on if I had ice cream uh, that day or not. (laughs) And, uh, so he's about 6'3", 240 as well. So we were battling pound for pound, and uh, we're at a park. It's a beautiful day by ourselves. No one else is out there. Everybody's uh, inside. and um, Played a few games, and he was making fun of me because I seemed very out of breath, and I was making fun of him because I was whooping up on him. He didn't beat me. Uh, but
2: make, sure you, was very make sure you out of- always put that in your story.
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> it needs to be said. Because someday he could very well uh, whoop up on me. So, uh, but anyways, yeah, uh, felt winded. It was unusual uh, be- because every time I would take a deep breath, it didn't seem like there was a lot of uh, oxygen uh, going in. And uh, that's where that's where we started. It was on a Sunday, and strangely enough, uh, my wife, who has now uh, been tested, she did the. Um, the white blood cell uh, test uh, recently, uh, which confirmed she had COVID as well. Her symptoms were very mild. She lost her taste and uh, sense of smell. Her symptoms started that Sunday morning. So the very same day, we began to notice our symptoms. So uh, that's the beginning. That's where we started.
1: So when was the first time that you heard about COVID-19 and what what did you think about Because me, I was like, oh, this is just another one of those dumb things everybody's freaking out about because it's not even serious. Yeah, that's exactly I was, how I was. I was making memes about it, and then all of a people that were secondhand to me nobody really within my circle has had it, but people yeah. secondary started getting it. And I was like, this thing's getting pretty close. And then I was like, yeah. I don't know if I should take it, if I'm taking it too serious or I'm not taking it seriously enough. But one of the mm-hmm. people that I was making jokes with, pastors of church not far from here, and pretty much whenever your case came down, he was mm-hmm. like, S- "I'm not making jokes about this anymore." Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, so for you, what was it like for you? Did you, when you first heard about it, did you even think that you would ever get it? Or uh, you know, I would assume you wouldn't. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> well,
0: if if we re- we rewind to. The early part of february my wife and i went on a cruise to the caribbean when we were going on this cruise they were doing extra screening uh for the boarding process and if you had a chinese passport if you had traveled to china in the past 14 days uh, they wouldn't permit you to come on board so that was uh the first time i had heard about covid uh, I don't believe it was really that widespread in the news yet, whether it was Fox News, CNN, or whatever the case may be. But I had recently uh, had influenza A, so I had the flu, a pretty bad bout with the flu. I came home from uh, teaching uh, or preaching our, our youth service one night and felt miserable, went to the doctor the next day, uh, had all the bad flu symptoms, was in bed for uh, the entire weekend. Uh, and that was right before the cruise, so... Uh, it was a rough winter for me as far as sickness. I had that. I was also a sick around Christmas time. And uh, <clears throat> as I <I'd clears throat> mentioned on other uh, broadcasts, I don't really have any serious underlying health conditions. Other than that, um, there's been times where you know, I may get bronchitis or pneumonia, but nothing that is serious like diabetes or upper respiratory you know diseases. But uh, so yeah, I, be- I believe that mid February, early March as it became, it became more of a pandemic, and we were hearing how it could really affect the United States. I thought about it in the sense that I had already had a pretty rough winter with sickness, but at the same time, I'm usually able to beat most of uh, the sicknesses I, I get by staying at home or with some simple antibiotics, and it's really um, no big deal. And I'm with you. Uh, at first, I said, Let's not make this more than it needs to be. Uh, I thought about people who said uh, the flu kills, say, 80, 90, 100,000 people a year, and they're predicting COVID may only kill a few thousand. And you know, I even said, oh, we can't afford for our economy uh, to to shut down over this. Uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, I never invested in the stock market uh, on my own. And for the first time ever in, in mid-February, I started investing in the stock market Worst decision ever. Worst decision ever. Worst (laughs) time ever to invest in the stock market. But uh, beginning of March, uh, even at church, we would talk with uh, some of our peers, some of our friends. And uh, it's not that I wasn't um, downplaying it. I also wasn't making a huge deal out of it. And then I received a text message from my brother. I call him my genius brother. He is... He really is a genius. He's a professor at the University of Michigan. He's a mathematician, uh, and so he Sounds was like texting. A nerd. <laughs> Straight up, he's a he's a different. He got different genes than I did. Uh, I'm more of the social guy. He's more of the brain. But he texted uh, my other brother and sister, and and told us that this is going to get worse before it gets better. Don't believe. Anyone who says it's it's no big deal, he had actually done a research study with colleagues, I believe, a few years ago that looked into pandemics like the one we're in right now. I'm not completely sure if it uh, was related to viruses, but he did say there's a good chance this is going to multiply at a fast rate, and, and he was right in hindsight. Uh, but from that point, we began to take it a little more seriously um, as far as We limited how, you know, how often we were in touch with people. Uh, But even so, our our last church service was uh, Sunday, I believe it was March 15th. And we were around people. You know, nobody was extremely scared about it. Uh, You you probably didn't go and shake somebody's hand or hug their neck, but maybe you you gave them the chicken wing, you gave them the elbow or whatever you you could do. Uh, But, yeah, I think around the time the shelter-in-place order I was put in. We thought, you know, this is this is going to be, this is going to be more than we originally thought. But even so, never could have predicted it would have developed like it did.
2: I mean, to, to Brian's point, bro, I've I've always just thought it was like a, um, just like another form of the flu, honestly, and and other than not going to restaurants, I haven't really changed. Um, that much of my lifestyle, maybe like I should. Um, what what have you done since um, being um, a victim of COVID nineteen? What have you done to um, kind of spread awareness for that, if you may?
0: With anybody I've talked to, whether it's been uh, on a on a uh, through a, a newspaper article or television or if it's been a podcast, I've encouraged people, if they get this virus, now God forbid that happens to anybody, but to react quickly. Uh, And I can allude to this more later, but it's essential to react quickly. But also, I I believe that uh, the social distancing measures that have been put in place, although they're not fun, and and it depends on where you live, I, I live in... Uh, the largest suburb of Chicago, second largest city in Illinois. We have over 200,000 people here. So uh, it's a little bit harder to social distance. But uh, I, I do think that it is critical that um, you keep that space. Now, that being said, uh, really, for me, I've limited, um, you know, the times I I leave the house. Really, it's, it's very rarely. But my wife has picked up the slack. She's gone out and done most of the grocery shopping uh, if we've needed to uh, go anywhere for supplies. She's done it uh, until recently, I've gone a few more places. Uh, I-, I look funny when I go out there with the mask that's required now here in our state and there are a few times I was wearing gloves and uh, so really, uh, it depends on where you live up here i would I would tell anyone to take all the precautionary measures, but it's also coming from a perspective of somebody who's, whose life was almost lost from this virus. So I, I see it differently than most people might.
1: So take us back to uh, um, after you first were diagnosed. What was, what was it like uh, when you were at the hospital and some of the medical things that was going on? And like, how close were you to death?
0: Yeah. When I was admitted to the hospital... It was a roller coaster ride in that I had already quarantined uh, at my house for nearly six days. And then on Saturday, we called to see if I could get a test. Now, if you go back to the month of March, around this time, there weren't very many tests available in any state, uh, let alone um, in many hospitals. So the hospital. Uh, that we felt comfortable going to. It's actually the hospital I was born at. Uh, it's the hospital my father worked at as the chief financial officer. Uh, so we called. They didn't have any tests available that day. And they said the earliest we could test you would be Monday morning. Nevertheless, uh, my mother, retired nurse, listened to my lungs, said, we've got to get you
2: there now. So, so we, what was it like being – what was it like being um, – Knowing that what everybody around you was almost saying, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better, and then the trauma of you thinking, "Oh no, what do I do?" What was that like for you?
1: Because for me, it would be scared I'd be scared to death, bro. Yeah, to know that it's the thing in the news, and all of a sudden, I really have it. Yes,
0: it was surreal because I, I'm a numbers guy. Uh, I I'm really big on looking at different uh, pieces of data and analysis. And so I was well versed in what they were saying in the media at this point, probably shouldn't have been uh, looking at the news and different articles, but it really was surreal to realize I was in that small percentage that was having to be hospitalized for this virus. And even that Saturday morning, or even if you go back to Friday night, I was starting to have, uh, you know, a, a elevated levels of anxiety to the point where I realized this was not the flu. This was not bronchitis. This wasn't a normal bout with pneumonia as it continued to get worse and worse and worse, even with rest. So naturally I'm going on very little sleep at this point. Uh, Didn't sleep much that week at all. So when you factor everything in, yes, I was, I was scared. Uh, It was It felt like walking into the unknown, Uh, and that's really what it was, because not only was I unsure of what was about to happen when I went to the hospital, but as I would find out, the physicians there were still in the very beginning stages of learning about this virus. I think where really sunk in, though, is when we arrived to the hospital. My mother is driving. I'm in the front seat. My wife's in the back seat. And they say, you have to go in there alone. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean I have to go in there alone? I can barely walk at this point. I'm so weak. My mother went in and they said, ma'am, unless you're a patient, you cannot come in here. And this is the emergency room. So at that point, when they said, you've got to go in there to get checked out, I'm I'm freaking out on the inside because – uh, I already have had these uh, illusions, if you will, of, of of doom, you know, that perhaps, you know, I'm dying at this point because I've never felt pain. I've never felt sickness like I was feeling. And now you're telling me I have to go to the hospital by myself and be all alone. So it elevated that already dangerous level of anxiety I was feeling. So from there, I was admitted to the hospital Really, when it comes to the diagnosis, though, I was not formally diagnosed with COVID until I was already on the ventilator a few days later.
2: So what did they as, diagnose you as?
0: At first, it was double pneumonia. Uh, they, they, When I arrived, went into the uh, emergency room. Uh, a nurse came in, said, we cannot test you for COVID-19 because we're saving those tests for medical professionals and those with underlying health conditions. But she said, we will take an x-ray of your lungs. They end up doing that. They, they take an x-ray. She comes in, and she says, your lungs are destroyed, <laughs> which, in you know, looking back, it's, it's crazy to believe they almost sent me home uh, if they hadn't have done that x-ray. But because my lungs were destroyed, she changed her mind and said, we're going to test you. But the initial diagnosis was double pneumonia. My oxygen levels were mm. were, were as low as they could be um, at that point for me to be coherent. Immediately, they put me on assisted oxygen. And then, uh, really, the next two days, I, I struggled immensely uh, looking back. At uh, text messages that I sent out to my wife and other family members, I can see now how badly I was struggling. I did not sleep that entire first night. I was in the hospital. When I would be put on the ventilator, it actually, uh, the medicine they gave me would wipe out my memory of everything else that happened before being put on the ventilator. So I've had to go back. And look at these text messages to even uh, realize or piece together what happened. Uh, uh,
2: <clears throat> whenever you, they decided to go ahead and put you on the ventilator, um, were you um, uh, conscious through all that? Did you know what was going on? What was or what was your thought process through all that? Um, mainly, uh, just just for me, it's very interesting information to me more than anything. Were you? Were you conscious through all that and you knew what was going on?
0: I was conscious only because they had me on that assisted oxygen. All day Sunday there was an ongoing discussion as I had already been moved to ICU. My family, myself, the physicians were discussing the possibility of being put on the ventilator. And they also said if your oxygen levels drop to a certain level, we're going to be forced to put you on. Otherwise, I had to willingly choose to be put on a ventilator, which is crazy to think about. Because ordinarily, when someone is put on a ventilator, realize that's life support. Usually it's an individual who's been in a serious car accident or something else has happened to them where they have experienced uh, you know blunt force trauma and they've, they've had to be put on this ventilator to keep them alive but they're unconscious I was conscious I, I was aware of what was happening I had to sign the papers now usually it would be a spouse or another loved one who would sign those papers if that individual was unconscious but here I am signing papers to willingly be put on life support ventilator so while I don't remember this happening I can look back at the text messages and even the way I was texting my wife and it's easy to realize I was not a fan of what was happening I am a control freak I love uh, always you know being able to determine what's going to happen next that's why my wife has not driven me around in a car in our six years of marriage I always have to be behind the wheel uh, so
2: man I'm on the same page. Co- <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: In this case I'm signing papers to give up control and to mm. not know what's going to happen next. And even now if I look back at that day it's amazing to realize that could have been my last day where I was aware of my surroundings where I truly had life in me. Because once you put on that ventilator, there's no telling if you ever come off.
2: Man, that has got to be the scariest thing in the world. Yeah. So, that would be an absolute terrifying moment for me. Uh, just as you are, I like to be in control. And if I'm not in control, I'm always a nervous wreck. Like, the guy that I ride around with a lot, like, he does not like me riding with him at all. Because I'm always like, dude, do you see that car stopping? Dude, come on, seriously? You know, and... For you to have to, not just um, in an easy sense of like driving, but you may never come out of this. This is, you're literally putting your life in a machine. Um, Yeah. what What was your spiritual life like at this point?
0: Honestly, I would love to tell you that I was texting my wife, my mother, my stepmother, my father, my stepfather, telling them, hey, let's pray right now. Let's get on FaceTime. You know, let's... Let's go before the Lord in this moment. But as I look back at my test text messages, that's not what I did. I was uh, a nervous wreck, as, as you're alluding to. So it's hard for me to really tell you what was taking place. I know that prayer did go forth uh, between the time I was admitted to the hospital and the time I was being put on the ventilator. I do realize that I was sending those text messages to my wife that were – uh, very, um, clearly, uh, close to being what you would call goodbye messages. If, if this is it goodbye, uh, I, I was saying, Hey, I love you. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I want you to be happy. Uh, I did joke at one point. I said, please don't get remarried too quickly. Uh, just messing around with her. I, I had been, so I, I still had that sense of humor. I, I like to make people laugh. And I was texting my, my nephews and nieces, and I said, make sure y'all y'all sing and play some great songs at my funeral. Gave them some suggestions. But as far as the, the spiritual aspect, there's really no way of knowing. Uh, I, I do trust that uh, in in the sense of what was taking place that uh, I can almost guarantee I was praying, but I don't think I was, I was calling for a family prayer meeting at that time. It was more so just between myself
2: and God. So things got pretty, pretty dark. I do remember, um, I'm in a group chat with some people that, you know, like Andrew Beavis and Jason Rutherford and, um, yeah. some guys like that's, th- those are my friends that I grew up with. And, oh, yeah. uh, we were in a, uh, a group chat together and, um, uh, I remember Andrew saying, guys, it's, it, it doesn't look too good for, for, uh, Andrew. Um, Let's let's all remember to keep him in our prayers. And uh, there was a time where nobody knew if you were going to pull through Um, when you did pull through and uh, things started to kind of go in a different direction. Thank God that they did. What was what was it like your relationship with your family at that point? Um, Because, bro, I I don't know. And I hope you you, kind of shed some light on it it got pretty dark there for a while, didn't it?
0: Yes, most certainly. My wife was a warrior during that week. If there's anybody who's ever exampled faith in modern times, when it comes to be, comes to walking through a trial or being faced with fire all around you, and you've got to walk through it. It's my wife. I can't say it enough. I've, I've tried to truly uh, shed light on how strong she is. Uh, she's a hero. She deserves to be to be praised for what she was able to do, all for the glory of God. The entire time she stood strong in my family, uh, it's remarkable what they had to go through and what every family uh, that has a loved one who's fighting COVID-19 has to go through when they're not able to be there at the hospital uh, with that individual. My wife, on Saturday night, when I went into the hospital, she made a very simple social media post that contained a picture of myself and her when we were on that cruise uh, a month and a half prior, saying it broke her heart um, concerning everyone who's had to deal with this virus, and now her husband, me, I was in the hospital, and so she was asking for prayers, which is an uncomfortable thing for her to do. Uh, If you know my wife, she's very soft-spoken. She usually uh, hands the mic over to me to speak. She's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. And she was very raw, very open at that point. And then by the next morning, uh, that post went viral to the point where each post after that, she would post to social media because she knew the power of prayer, and the more people were praying, the better off we were going to be, because I believe God was honoring those prayers, and there were prayer warriors who were truly praying with great faith, and it was making a difference in my situation. But as far as family, they, they, they binded together. It, it was a blessing that we were in Michigan. Looking back at it all, we had intended to go to Michigan for a week. We ended up being there for a month. That wasn't the plan, but had we not gone to Michigan, it would have been very difficult uh, for someone to watch my son or even for my wife to have the support she needed. And my wife, that entire week when I was on the ventilator, she was she was still working remotely, which I, I look back at it and say, man, what were you doing? You should have told work you can't do this. And even during that time, she was um, – Throughout the day, having to take care of my son if if family wasn't around. But she says it it was a way for her to get her mind off what was taking place. But my family was constantly calling for updates um, on my condition. And they probably drove the nurses and doctors uh, insane with how often they were calling. I think it got to the point where the, the physicians would look at the caller ID and they, they already knew the number. They already <laughs> knew that they were calling to check up on on me. But it really did uh, it really did look uh, hopeless that Friday morning afternoon, where my condition went downhill quickly. Uh, it, it was so quick that they were scrambling to figure out if I had a second infection because. The day prior, my wife was posting to social media saying I was improving. I, and they told her out of all of the patients on ventilators, which I was either the first patient or the second patient who was put on a ventilator at this hospital. But they said he's doing the best. We don't know if it's because of his age. I'm only 29 years old, fairly young to have gotten this virus in the first place. But he, he his, his levels are where we want them to be. But then they did this spontaneous breathing test and it just I, my condition just dropped off a cliff uh, to the point where they had to hurry up, put me back on the ventilator because I, I could not breathe when I was off of it because it was it was such a failure. They had to turn the ventilator settings all the way up. My vitals were dropping to the point where Had they waited a few more minutes, I probably would have gone into cardiac arrest, and who knows if they would have been able to revive me. Uh, My temperature, which had gone down to normal levels earlier that week when I was on the ventilator, suddenly began to spike, which is what made them think I may have another infection. That's Friday morning, afternoon, they call my mother, and my wife's there, and they relay the news that we're going to be very honest. Uh, we want to make sure that we're as transparent as we can be, but your son really has less than a 50% chance of ever coming off the ventilator. And what I've been telling people on different broadcasts is if you look at my numbers, they still have the numbers. They, they took um, elaborate notes every time they talked on the phone with a physician. If you look at my numbers and all these these fancy um, readings that I, I can't even describe—they would be better able to describe them than me. But my my chance of coming off the ventilator at that point was a thirty percent chance. That's the best approximate, but some would even say it was less than that. Now those those aren't really good odds. That's that's not what anyone was looking for. Yeah. Uh, and it, it looked very it looked very gloomy at that point. Uh, and they even made mention, uh, and you can look at my numbers. Most of the individuals who fail a breathing test like that, or their number, their 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 ventilator settings are raised to what mine were. Not only are they put back on the ventilator, but we're talking they're on it for weeks upon weeks. Yeah,
2: your <clears throat> Pastor Brent Coltharp, he he was uh, he was uh, sick at the same time, wasn't he?
0: Yes, my pastor was sick uh, around the same time. Even when he did a a Sunday broadcast for one of our church services, I felt horrible because I could tell he was
1: he was poor he was and struggling
0: sweat. with it. Yeah, he was.
2: Yeah, I saw not that. Feeling broadcast. well,
0: our uh, our executive pastor
2: uh, he he had it as well. So uh, our church got hit pretty hard Greg, with it. Greg Wilhelm had it as well. Yes, I did not know that. Wow, You're, yes. I knew that your guys's church was hit hard, man. It was hit yeah. hard, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's been a few churches up here in Chicago. Unfortunately, uh, we've been we've been hit by it.
1: So, but so when did it all turn?
0: That Friday night, there, there's no way to explain it other than divine intervention. As my wife's social media posts had gone viral, and uh, Many other ministers, uh, well-connected individuals on social media had spread my story. We had hundreds, if not thousands, of churches within the United Pentecostal Church, the Assemblies of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, many other Pentecostal organizations, and people who are not necessarily Pentecostal or, or a Christian, but they're simply connected to those individuals who are who are praying for me. Uh, we've, we've estimated hundreds of thousands— uh, as there's been churches who've, who've messaged me saying, we were praying for you. And these are churches in Pakistan and Philippines and and Ghana, Africa, all over the place. Churches of thousands of people who I was right at the top of their prayer list. And that Friday night, between the time I failed that test and they're they're monitoring me closely. They've got a nurse in my room basically at all times. That Friday night going into Saturday morning, something happened, <laughs> and, and and I we know what happened. God reached down, and he breathed life back into my lungs because Saturday morning and then afternoon, they updated my wife saying, not only is he doing better, but he's doing better than he was before we even did that spontaneous breathing test. They had upgraded my condition. To extremely critical, believing that there was a chance I could die on the ventilator at any moment. That was on Friday. Fast forward, I do this 180-degree turn, and they're telling my family we can't, we can't explain it. We, we don't know what happened, but he's doing better. We're going to continue to monitor him, but he's he's going in the right direction that was between Friday night and Saturday.
2: Bro, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to be 100% honest with me. Um, do you doubt at all that it was God?
0: No doubt. No doubt at all. Now now realize, I, I've mentioned this to a few others, and I don't mention it here because I feel comfortable enough to do so. I believe there are instances Whereas ministers, we can limit the miraculous from happening because we have that little bit of doubt that something is going to happen or that truly, you know, it's God who's going to make the difference. And we've heard stories where people have said it was God. But we contained a little bit of doubt that it could have been medicine or it could have been something else. And because of that, we approach situations where we need to have faith and that little bit of doubt is still in our heart. And because of it, we don't see the miraculous. But in my case, I'm telling you, it's not it's there's not even a, a little bit of a chance that it was medicine that it was the way they positioned me, that it was anything else. Because not only am I 130% sure that it was God, but there are other prayer warriors, great men of God, who that very night, they would they would message my wife or they would tell others that God told them specifically I was going to come out of it. You want to hear what's remarkable. There's a member of my church who, while I was still fighting this virus, still on the ventilator, and even after I made that dramatic turnaround, there's no way of knowing if I was going to come off the ventilator anytime soon or at all. Simply, they said my condition was doing better than it had been, but I was still on the ventilator. There's this man at our church who texted Sister Rachel Colthart, my pastor's wife, and told her that God had relayed to him. That not only would I come off the ventilator, but it would be five days after the time he had spoken to the Lord in prayer, after God had spoke to him. And I kid you not, when he sent that text to my pastor's wife, five days later, uh, I didn't just come off the ventilator. Actually, to backtrack, he said that God told him I would be discharged from the hospital. So... We're talking about more than just a hundred and eighty degree turn. I'm I'm not only off the ventilator, I'm going home.
2: While Five you're days. While the ventilator.
0: While I'm still in the ventilator. Wow. Not even I'm not even coherent. Five days later, I was discharged from the hospital. To the dot. Five days after that man heard from the Lord, I was discharged from the hospital. But there were many other accounts of people Telling my wife, and I'm sure it built her faith, saying, you don't need to worry. Your husband is coming out of this. Now, they very easily could have said, honey, we're going to pray for you. God's in control. You, you know the, the generic prayer. The We're there for you. It's all in God's hands. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer. I mean, because that's still uplifting and it's, it's still meaningful. But there were people who had heard from God. And we're telling her and others. There was many others that would message me saying, you're coming out of this. While I was in the ventilator, I had people messaging me and they were saying, you're coming out of this. And boom, that night, 100% sure God healed me.
1: What does that do to renew? Does that renew to you a sense of I have a purpose?
0: Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. There has been a radical transformation not only in my thinking of what god can do but also in my faith what i can't even comprehend that god would do i have faith that it's it's possible for it to happen uh, I, i've shared this with this with a few others but literally I, i'm of the belief now that if that happened in my life literally Raised from the dead, if you will, a Lazarus situation. I, When I'm ministering to people, I'm going to tell them, you better be careful being around me. Because if you don't want your situation turned around, don't be around me. Because if I pray for you, I've got faith it's going to happen just like that. Mm. That's what it's done for me. And I believe that's going to play in to my purpose. Why God spared my life, only time will tell. If you do it all, I...
2: Go ahead. Uh, we, we had a podcast earlier that was released with uh, Doug Kleinen. I don't know if you are familiar with him or not. Um, yeah. but he we asked him why these um, massive miracles and uh, very uh, dynamic miracles happen overseas but not in the United States. And he said that here in the United States we make God as a last resort. Because we have money to lean on to, we have doctors to lean on to, we have family and friends to lean on to, we've got insurance to lean on to, but overseas, they come expecting here he- a miracle and healing, and um, if they don't get healed, they they don't go to the doctor, they go back and live with pain, but they still believe, and I'm assuming with you and your situation... That's you now, just like you're saying. God has radicalized your faith where you believe in the blind eye, eye open and the deaf ear and stop, correct? Yes, sir. I mean, that's 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 just that's faith that you literally had to go to the darkest place to be able to preach this whenever you're able to preach again. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. So tell us a little bit about your ministry now. I know that uh, you're... Uh, heavily involved with um, First Apostolic Church in Aurora, correct? Yeah. So what do you and your wife do there?
0: Uh, We serve as youth pastors. Uh, We've been in this uh, capacity for the last four and a half years, going on five years. I've been in youth ministry for a very long time. Uh, Even before I went to Bible college, I was involved in youth ministry. So for over 10 years, 11 years now. And That's my heartbeat. I love students. I have a, a graduate degree in school counseling. I have not gone into uh, that um, career yet, uh, but a lot of the reason I received that degree is because of that love I have for students. And,
2: Absolutely. And, and who
0: knows if it can be used in the future to work at a Christian school or whatever the case is. I've always joked I, I'm one of the very few that I love the junior high age. I absolutely love the transformation and the changes that are happening um, between the ages of 12 and 14, where a lot of people stray away and, and they say, oh, I'd rather deal with high school students or I'd rather deal with adults. No, I I think that, that period of time between 12 and 14 is so critical. It's a and crucial it's, time.
2: It's,
0: it's crucial. Uh, it's a challenge, but that's why I love it. I love the challenge and I love uh, just sharing my heart with those students and helping them to grow closer to the Lord. So we serve as youth pastors. Uh, I have uh, evangelized earlier on in my ministry. Uh, i very involved in, in music ministry. I do feel like God has also called me to be uh, a worship leader. I've led worship uh, in various different conferences and camps and, uh, and so forth. But uh, from there, I mean,
2: we're all over the place. We love missions, too. We love awesome. it all. Uh, So so you're
0: invested. Yeah, my wife and I, we met on a missions trip. I was actually uh, helping to lead it, and she was uh, one of the students on it. We're the same age, uh, but that's how we cross paths, and we love to travel, and we love going anywhere we can to minister to people. So as far as what this means for our future, there's there's no way of knowing, but I've always told my pastor, I said, I I view myself as someone who's going to be ministering to youth for the rest of my life whether that's as a youth pastor or someday if i became a pastor and still minister to students or an evangelist however it works out i really have a a heart that is centered towards students i, I love i love teens i love young adults and and i wouldn't change my ministry for anything
2: i got one final question brian may have one <clears throat> i'm not sure my final question is kind of a little bit lighter but I know you've been working on it, bro. I want you to share it with me. What's your next sermon?
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got many sermons that I've been working on. I love that the fact that we've had a little more time on our hands as I've been able to cultivate and really work on different messages and some messages that that God has given me, Um Over the last few weeks, but even when I was in the hospital, uh, one message in particular that I'm going to be uh, speaking on tomorrow to a youth group in Michigan is it's titled and it's a question. and It simply is how to you how do you talk about the dead now that message centers around a story. In the Bible where the Apostle Paul is speaking to other Christians uh, on this third story of a building and the Bible says he was speaking to them from supper until midnight which that's a very lengthy sermon that's probably about six hours and the Bible says that at around the midnight hour there was a young man who was sitting beside a window, and he fell out the window, and he dropped to his death. Now, the very next few verses don't say that the Apostle Paul called you know, in an emergency. It doesn't say he was seeking out help. It didn't say he panicked, but the Bible says he went down to where the boy was laying dead. Grabbed him in his arms. He didn't say, men and brethren, you know, ladies, everyone, let's lay hands on him and let's pray that he recovers. The Bible says that he simply made the remark, he's alive. And just like that, the boy was revived. He regained life and he went on his way and they celebrated, they rejoiced. It's, it's, it's really crazy. <laughs> Scripture also says the Apostle Paul went back up there and he ministered the rest of the night until, until dawn. But what is so remarkable about that story is it shows a different type of faith, a faith that I believe was on display in my situation, uh, to speak what is not as though it already is yeah the apostle paul looked down from that windowsill and he saw a dead young man he walked down there and he did not talk about this young man as if he was dead as if the situation was hopeless as if they were going to need to get him to a hospital but instead he said he is alive he had faith Great faith, such faith in the God that he served that if he simply spoke those words, it was going to happen. And it did. He spoke what was not as though it was. That's a different kind of faith. And in my situation, I, I could not have that faith because I was asleep. <laughs> I was on some heavy drugs. I was on that ventilator, life support, in a coma, whatever you want to call it but there was a young lady who was in a bedroom who was calling out my name for hours upon hours on a nightly basis fasting nearly every meal and that was my wife and if you've if you've heard my wife's account of everything that happened you will hear her say that god kept reminding her this was a process this was for a greater good than she could have even imagined. It goes around. it goes right along with the story of Lazarus, how truly uh, Jesus waited to go to Lazarus so that the miracle would have a greater impact on those disciples and everybody who was there. And in this case, my miracle didn't happen right away. But when those prayer chains started, when everyone began to call out my name and there was just momentum building and building and building, boom, That Friday night, God stepped in and he healed me. I believe it's not just only building my faith, but it's building people's faith all around the world. The people who were praying for me. But with my wife, she never doubted for a moment that I was going to be healed. There was not that little bit of doubt that I was going to be healed. She said the entire time, I've asked her this. I said, "Were, were you beginning to think... You'd, you'd have to start planning a funeral. Were you starting to believe that this could be it, that you'd never talk to your husband again? Were you playing out these situations in your mind where my two-year-old son wouldn't have his father to, to throw a football to him, you know, for the first time or to go to his, his basketball games? And she looked at me one night after all this had taken place, and she said, never for a moment. The entire time, I believed that God was going to heal you. There was never any doubt. And she said she would speak, she would speak life over my situation, even though it looked like a dead, you know, scenario where I was not going to make it. And the message to anybody who who, who would hear this sermon preached, the one that I'm going to speak on tomorrow, is to, to do exactly what the Apostle Paul did. Even if everybody else is saying give up, it's a dead situation. Speak what is not, as though it already is.
1: Bro, you That's better hold on to your
0: wife. I'm telling you,
1: she sounds like the real deal.
0: She's remarkable. So,
1: so here in closing, we want you to—you've already been doing it—but we want you to, again to speak hope to someone whose their, their spouse is in a hopeless situation.
0: Yeah, to to anybody who hears this, who is wondering what's going to happen next, I would encourage them to pray the same prayer I prayed when I came off the ventilator. And although I was not in the clear, there was still a good chance that my situation could go downhill quickly. When I was able to lift up a voice and I was able to call out to God, in prayer. I prayed this prayer. It's a prayer I I desire for every apostolic Pentecostal to make a part of their prayer life every day. It it sounds very simple. It sounds like a prayer you've heard a minister pray hundreds of times, but usually they don't add on what I would say you need to to, to pray, and that is, God, let your will be done no matter the outcome. There is a sense of peace and there is a joy and there is truly a comfort God will give you when you pray that prayer. Because oftentimes we pray, God, let your will be done in my situation, in my spouse's situation, in my other loved one's situation. And then we say, oh, God, let your will be done. But I really want them back. And so you see, we've still got that control. It goes along with what you were talking about, um, Brother Goforth. You, You were speaking to how miracles don't happen as often here because we first go to money or we first go to other resources instead of relying on God before anything else. It's because we like that control. We can have a little bit of control if we've got the money or if we've got the doctor. But when you pray the prayer... God let your will be done, no matter the outcome. Giving up that control, and it may feel uncomfortable at first, but when you do that, when you pray that prayer in all sincerity, God will give you a comfort and a peace like you've never known. Because in that moment, you're truly saying, Lord, take control, no matter what you choose to do. Because here's the truth. We all want our prayers to be answered like we think they should be answered. But God's ways are higher. He has plans we can't even imagine. I had no idea any of this was going to happen. I had no idea that there was a different purpose for my life and I truly believe there is through all of this. But I I, I realize it now and and if if prayers had been prayed like God let your will be done please let it let him be healed like this, that, and the other. I don't believe that there would have been that sense of peace. If my wife was praying that prayer at home, there wouldn't have been that comfort. There wouldn't have been that belief in the process. But because my my wife was, I've taught her to pray this prayer. I've taught my young people to pray this prayer. It sounds crazy. Before we go on youth trips, I say, Lord, let your will be done. No matter the outcome, because I've read in books and, and I've heard sermons about when you pray that prayer, it might sound crazy, but. Who knows? You might get a flat tire on the side of the road, and the person who comes to fix that tire, you're able to minister to. And the next thing you know, you're baptizing them in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, that was not a part of the plan. That's right. But you said, Lord, let your will be done no matter the outcome. And He brought something greater to your situation. And so I would say that to anybody who's going through this pandemic with a loved one who's in the hospital fighting this virus or any other person uh, that's connected to them, is to pray that prayer. That's, that's what I prayed. And I prayed, I said, God, if you want to leave me here, use me for your glory. But if you want to take me, Lord, take me. I think that's another key point to all of this. We need to stop viewing death as defeat. We need to stop viewing. Uh, we've even had some great ministers in our movement who passed on, and their families are going to mourn. Our entire movement's going to mourn at this time, but we don't weep for those as who have no hope. We, we have a hope and, and the hope is what comes next. And so I prayed that prayer with the belief that yeah, I don't want to die, but how selfish would it be of me if I were to say, Lord, keep me here. I want to be with my family when he's the one who created me and he's the one who longs to hold me in his arms someday. And so I prayed that prayer, no matter the, Outcome, and when you do that, you once again you give God control. And because He chose to keep me here, I believe He's letting me know that there's something else for me to do, and for for families, they need to pray that prayer. And if God so chooses to leave their loved one, it's for a purpose. If He chooses to take him, it's because He was ready to call them home. But once again, when you pray that prayer, it's dynamic. And it will change your mindset and it will change how you feel in your heart.
1: Well, that's some pretty powerful stuff, man. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord.
0: Amen. That's right.
1: Thank you so much for your time of coming on here in order to speak hope to somebody and clarify uh, to some people out there uh, some the the things that happened because of this coronavirus. Um, Hopefully this thing will be quickly something in the rearview mirror and and this has given and at least in your case, a tremendous testimony of what God can do because in any hopeless situation, there's always a possibility of God's miraculous demonstration showing up and showing out and doing something no one would have expected and doing greater things than we could have ever anticipated. And with that, this has been the crucial conversation podcast.
2: P S bro. Whenever, uh, Restaurants open back up. You better go take your wife out for a nice dinner,
0: <laughs> bro. I'm I'm ready. I'm sick and tired of takeout. We just we went and got takeout tonight. I don't know if your y'all's wives are you know are like this, but my wife is your typical. I can never decide what I want to eat type of oh, woman.
1: Never heard of that. Yeah, <laughs> never heard of that one.
0: She is the stereotype.
2: Oh, thank and. You. That's so. That funny. was
0: today. I texted some of my friends. I said, Mother's Day is great other than when the mother can't decide where she wants to eat because we're in the car. We're already driving, and we didn't know where we were going. She literally said, just get on the interstate. I'll think about it. I'm like, we're not going on a road trip. We're trying to get dinner here. Bro, by the <laughs> time
2: she decides, you're going to be in Springfield.
0: Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, but, man. yeah,
0: it, it literally, you know, we're thinking we wanted to eat something great, but every, like, nice – restaurant even if it was a chain restaurant we told ourselves like we don't get takeout from that place or this place that's a sit-down restaurant so yeah it, uh, it'll happen
1: bro it'll happen we for sure. we got takeout tonight at olive garden we're actually sitting in target parking lot looking at our olive garden and we get there oh, they didn't even word. give us any silverware L- luckily that we had <laughs> we had some well, plasticware luckily we had some from the last place we got takeout we got it from sumo <sighs> japanese restaurant and they gave oh, us nice. extra chopsticks so, I ate my Italian food with chopsticks. <laughs> <laughs> I, had to, oh, I had to use a little oh, plastic awesome. fork, fork to cut up my chicken parmesan. Then I, I cannot chopsticks. believe
2: oh. you're telling our sponsors and listeners you ate at Olive Garden tonight. It was a
1: little sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was Lazari. Oh, sorry. man.
2: Andrew, thanks for your time, bro. And, uh, hey, man, we sure really you appreciate you being transparent.
1: And you have a great night, bro. All right, you too. And don't go to Olive Garden, they don't give you any plasticware. Go to Lazari Italian Oven. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for
2: listening to The Crucial
1: Conversation. Hey, guys. This is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to The Crucial Conversation Podcast.